Welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. Today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as he explores the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In our study in Ruth, we're up to the last chapter, chapter 4, where Boaz becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He redeems the land and the bride. To understand the cultural circumstances behind his legal maneuvering in this chapter, Boaz does a bit of legal maneuvering in order to get what he wants and to become the redeemer. So to understand what's going on, the background material in the writings of Moses will help. Now we've already seen God's law from Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 for redeeming the land. After an Israelite sold his land, it could later be redeemed so that the land would be kept in his family. Now, regarding the redeeming, not of the land, but so to speak of the bride, of a childless widow, please look at Deuteronomy 25, starting with verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife... Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now we'll continue to read a few more verses, but notice this idea is so foreign to our minds and our Western culture here in America in the year 2000. We can't conceive of a marriage taking place just because some law said, well, now you're supposed to marry your brother's widow. We can't conceive of that. We are fully immersed in the concept of dating and falling in love and then getting married. And of course, we've talked about this issue over the years and through various Bible studies, but that's not the common way you see marriages put together in the Bible and throughout the history of the world and today in many nations, they have arranged marriages. And I don't plan on taking any time today and talking about that, but just to point out that arranged marriages seem to have a way better success rate than marriages based on dating and falling in love. Because when you fall in love, that's definitely an emotional experience and you end up with Millions of marriages on a foundation of emotion. Generally, emotion cannot sustain something long-term. So you fall in love, you love each other, you just touch your fingertips and you get all these fluttery feelings in your, in your stomach. And, but then after three or four years or seven or eight years, it's not like that. If that is the basis of your marriage, then we can see why so many millions of marriages, most marriages fall apart. And that's tragic. 
So we shouldn't condemn another culture or another time or even in our own day, the handful of Christians in America and others, not only Christians, like Muslims and others, who are doing arranged marriages even in this day. And it's pretty neat. In our own church, we have Jonathan and Christina. That's not exactly arranged marriage, but he rode off to uh, Romania and found a Christian woman and went there, picked her up and married her. And, you know, that's not exactly a long courtship where you get to know one another and a typical dating scene. And we have another Christian guy that we're friends with in Michigan who heard us talking about this on the show back on TV, and he wrote off to Russia. He said, I'm looking for a Christian woman to marry. And I said, well, here's one. He said, okay, I'll come and get her. (laughs) And he went and he got her and he married her, and that was years ago. And we still keep in touch with them. And so many of these marriages, my friends in Aurora, who had an arranged marriage, they for years have owned a restaurant out there. They have two beautiful kids. He met his wife on his wedding day. That's when he met her. And he's very successful, good-looking, young guy. Uh, in fact, he has a, he's world-renowned in his reputation for certain reasons. And he's an obedient son. He was about 24 years old. His parents called him up, said, you got to come home. Got to fly back home. You're getting married in three weeks. And he said, all right, I can't wait. And he went home and he got married. And I've had dinner at their home. So God here is putting in the Mosaic law a custom that we'll find out had already been in force for centuries by the time Moses wrote it down. And that's if your brother is married and your brother dies his wife has no children, then you are to marry your brother's wife so that your brother's land will stay in his family and you raise up a child in his name. That is not a moral law. That There wasn't an absolute spiritual requirement where that custom was mandatory, but it was symbolic and cultural. So today, do we have to do that? No, we don't. There's no necessity. There's no obligation. There's no urging to do such a thing. In fact, the opposite. Because back in the Old Testament, polygamy was somewhat common. So if a man had a wife, and he could end up with two wives. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. And from then came the 12 tribes of Israel. So life and culture and law was different back then than it is today. And it's good to understand both sets of conditions and so we can figure out when was their rules better than ours? Where is ours better than theirs? And the Bible is the guide by which we would make that judgment. Deuteronomy 25, verse 8. This is where the husband's brother said he will not marry his sister-in-law who's now widowed. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house 
of him who had his sandal removed. You don't want that said about you. (laughs) And the sandal, he might never get the sandal back. It might be kept in evidence by the city magistrate or by the widow. And this custom predated Moses by more than 400 years, although we don't know when it started. But in the time of the patriarchs, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, it was in force. Genesis chapter 38, one of our favorite neglected Bible verses, Genesis 38 verse 7 says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And that's a neglected Bible verse. You don't find that on plaques in churches anywhere. Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And the next verse, And Judah said to Onan, Onan was Judah's second son, Go into your brother's wife. Anybody recall what her name was? It was Tamar. Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Thus, by the custom apparently delivered to the ancients from God, a brother would substitute for a brother. A brother was dead, and in this case, it'd be the younger brother substituting for the older brother. The substitution would bring about a new birth and an heir for the inheritance, where otherwise there would be no heir. This act, this cultural event, is reminiscent of Christ taking Adam's place, his brother, so to speak, both in the Bible being called sons of God. It's reminiscent of Christ taking Adam's place and thus men can be born again now in the body of Christ and thereby inherit the riches of our Father. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate What does that mean? He went up to the gate. The gate was not only the entrance of the city. If a city was walled, let's say like Megiddo. Now this is in, what city is this book taking place in? Bethlehem. For part of the time they went off to Moab across the Dead Sea up in the mountains. But the rest of the city takes place in Bethlehem. If a city is walled, then the gate is a really significant structure, thick walls and actual gate and side rooms. If the city isn't very fortified, then the gate of the city would be most likely where the local road intersects the border of the city. And so wherever the local road comes up to your city, they'd probably build a structure with a roof to provide shade and the elders of the city would sit in the gate all day long. And, you know, the working men would be out working, but in the morning they'd go through the gate. At night they'd come back through the gate and they'd check on the news of the day. If there were any trials to be held, a judge would sit there in the gate in the open air and the accused would be brought before him, the witnesses, he would inquire of them and bring a verdict. That happened in the gate. Much of the business of the community was conducted in the gate the business transactions, the contracts, the witnesses. It would all happen there in the gate. And that's where Boaz went to. 
Now, from the, up to this point in the book, we know that Boaz has met Ruth. He's a relative of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and he wants to redeem the land that Naomi owned with her husband, who's deceased, Elimelech, and he would like to marry Ruth, who's now widowed. So to accomplish this, he went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Sit down because we have something important to talk about. This is not just in passing. This is pretty serious. So please sit down. And this nearer relative, this close relative, was a closer relative to Elimelech and to Ruth's husband than was Boaz. So Boaz was a near relative, but he wasn't the nearest. There was a next of kin who was closer than Boaz, and that's this guy. And this guy had the right to redeem the land and marry Ruth. So Boaz is... He's got to meet with him, talk with him, and see if he could get that right away from him. This is some pretty serious business that Boaz wants to conduct. He wants to take away the right from one man to redeem a large parcel of land. So he wants to become the new registered owner of the land. He wants to marry the widow. And so there's a legal transaction that might occur. But... Notice how there are no complex legal preliminaries. He just goes to the gate. The guy he needs to do business with comes by, sit down. There's no lawyers, no depositions, no guardian ad litems, no imposed complexity on a relatively simple matter, no unnecessary delays. Verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. For matters of lesser consequence, two or three witnesses would suffice. However, the Bible suggests here and elsewhere that on matters of greater significance, like marriage, divorce, transfer of land, ownership of land, then ten men would witness the transaction so they could in the future corroborate Yes, in fact, this transaction did occur. Verse 3. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, Then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, this closer relative said, I will redeem it. Okay, the word there for redeem is a Hebrew word, of course. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. This Hebrew word is goal, goal. And it refers especially to redemption by a kinsman and the right to redeem of a relative. 
It's unlike the other popular Hebrew word for redeem, which means redeem or ransom, and it doesn't denote this kinsman relationship. It just means to redeem or ransom. Whereas this word, and they're they're both used frequently in the Old Testament, this word doesn't just mean redeem, but it means a relative who redeems or who has the right to redeem. I'll give you just three instances where this word appears other than the book of Ruth. The very first occurrence of this Hebrew word goal, meaning redemption by a kinsman, appears in a very interesting story in Genesis 48. And it's one we've looked at earlier in this study. Uh, Genesis 48:14. then Jacob stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. This is one of those sibling switch stories where the siblings swap places, the younger for the older, and the older ends up taking the inheritance, the younger ends up taking the inheritance of the older. We've gone through the book of Genesis and we've showed all the sibling swaps in the whole book repeatedly and how they all point to Christ where the relationship between Christ and Adam and Christ took Adam's place and he stole Adam's corrupted inheritance, his spoiled inheritance, but then because of him, that inheritance became blessed once again. But anyway, the first occurrence of the Hebrew word for the kinsman redeemer occurs in this story of the swapped siblings. And Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads. And that's the kinsman redeemer. God is not only my creator, but he's my relative. He's my near kin. He's my father, father God. The second occurrence of the word is in Exodus 6, verse 6. Say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So God is our kinsman redeemer. And a famous occurrence of the word is in Job 19.25 when Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. So when Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, he's referring to the kinsman Redeemer. And ultimately, that is Jesus Christ. He is our kinsman Redeemer. You could go through the books of the Old Testament and in book after book after book, you could find a person or an offering, or a feast, or some significant thing in that book that's a symbol, a type of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Ruth, the significant symbol that is the type of Christ is Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess. You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Right? Deuteronomy only mentions this obligation regarding brothers-in-law. 
Right? That's it. In Deuteronomy 25, if your brother's wife dies, you have to marry her. Or you should. It doesn't say if your cousin's wife. Right? It doesn't extend it beyond that. However, the Mosaic law is not, and it does not present itself as comprehensive. If you're going to give a comprehensive law, you need something like they have in England or something like we have here. Millions upon millions of laws which no one could ever read in their whole life. And it becomes very ineffective. God is much wiser than human legislators. He doesn't give millions of laws. He started out with Ten Commandments. And they pretty much sum up the whole deal. And then to clarify on certain points, he gave a handful of additional laws. So the Mosaic Law is a skeleton law which requires judges to fill in the blanks and to apply the basic principles to circumstances other than those specified in the text itself. So in this case, Ruth, the young widow, has no children and her only brother-in-law is dead. Right? Her only brother-in-law, Naomi, had two sons. They both married Moabite women and both the sons died. So the one guy who would marry her is gone. So the custom made clear that the responsibility to marry her extended to the next of kin if there were no eligible brothers-in-law. And there was a field, remember, some land associated belonging to her dead husband's family. And it would be especially thoughtless for a relative to redeem the land and abandon the widow. To leave the widow uncared for, but take the land for its economic value. That would be thoughtless. So, as I said earlier, this custom by today's standards was strange indeed. But typically in the Bible, and we've seen this in so many studies, if something in the Bible is especially strange, what does that normally imply? Well, if it's weird, like the cities of refuge, right? You accidentally kill somebody, you go to the city of refuge, and you have to stay there until the death of the one who was high priest in those days. And then you could go home. That's a weird rule. That's a weird custom. Well, it's, it points to Christ. It's not fundamental morality, but it was a picture of Jesus Christ. And over and over in the Bible, because when Jesus Christ, the high priest in those days, dies, then all the believers who were waiting in Abraham's bosom could go home to be with God. So they waited until the death of the one who was high priest in those days. That's the symbolism. That's the meaning of those strange passages about the city of of refuge. Well, here we have a strange story. And we could ask the question, is there symbolism behind it? Or is it just a strange cultural thing that we can't figure out? Well, the point of this particular custom is to perpetuate the name of the dead. As Boaz said in this verse, regarding Ruth, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead, raise up an inheritance where there was none, life where there was only death. Death should not be considered the end for the people of God, for there is a resurrection. And a man's name being perpetuated 
and his legacy and the inheritance that he leaves all symbolize that he himself has not been annihilated. Well, a lot of unbelievers think when you die, that's it. You're obliterated. You're gone. A number of Christians have gone down this erroneous road of thinking that when unbelievers die, they're annihilated. We call that person is an annihilationist. Well, does the Bible teach that people are annihilated or that there is life after death? Obviously, the latter. And in this case, when the man's name is being perpetuated and his legacy and the inheritance that he leaves is being focused on, that's a symbol that shows us that he still lives to affect the people that he has left behind. Even from beyond the grave, he has influence. For the dead are not really dead. Right? The righteous dead live in heaven. The wicked dead exist in hell. We might prefer to call it for the wicked. We might prefer to call it existence rather than life because their existence lacks what we would call life. Rather, they exist in an eternal state of death, of separation from God. But they have consciousness. They're miserable. They hate God. They don't want to go to heaven. If they were invited and the gates spread wide open, they wouldn't go because they hate God. But they exist. The Bible does not teach annihilation. Uh, The rantings of a Solomon notwithstanding, the Bible does not teach that the dead cease to exist. But a kinsman raises up an heir to his brother and perpetuates his name. Whereas the dead, the truly dead, the non-existent, would have no legacy. They wouldn't have a progeny. Non-existence can't have anything. And it's similar to an argument Jesus made about God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Sadducees argue, well, is there a resurrection? And Jesus said, is there a resurrection? Haven't you ever read God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. That was a little argument Jesus used to prove his point. And likewise, you don't have a legacy and you don't have your name continuing in perpetuity if you don't exist, if you're non-existent. A non-existent thing cannot have a legacy. So this custom... And this Mosaic law symbolizes a vital certainty, a spiritual truth that men do not cease to exist at death. Life after death, the resurrection is a reality. But not everyone believes that. And even many career ministers and rabbis do not believe in life after death. In fact, some of them were around back at the time of Christ. They were called Sadducees. And after our break, we'll take a look at one of the arguments they made to Jesus to try to prove that there is no life after death. Hi, this is Nicole McBurney again, and it's Telethon Month, so why don't you join us? That's right, join us by sponsoring an episode of Theology Thursday, Real Science Radio, or any one of our daily broadcasts, ministries, and shows. For just $150 a month, you can sponsor a show and help us sustain and grow the ministry. 
Go to kgov.com and click on Telethon right now. That's kgov.com, kgov.com, and click Telethon to help us stay on the air. And before you take off, just a minute of remembering Bob Enyart. I went to Bob Enyart's very first Bible study, circa 19-something or other, and he was teaching on Revelation. We had a great big crowd, and he taught for about an hour and a half, and he didn't talk much about prophecy or the end times or anything in this big Bible study about Revelation. He talked about the Bible and understanding the big picture and understanding the plot of the Bible. And I'm so thankful that I subscribed to Bob Enyart's Bible study probably 20 years ago, and I suggest you do it too. Go to kgov.com, go to the store, click subscriptions, and subscribe to Bob Enyart's monthly Bible study. It will enrich your life, and it will expand the depth of your knowledge of our source for our worldview, the Bible.